morning. Praise, prayer, and perplexity. That's life, isn't it? Even for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. Sometimes our life is filled with praise. We can pour out our hearts in praise to God. Sometimes we're pouring out prayers. Sometimes perplexity, but most of the time, a combination of all three. During these last weeks of a very warm summer, I like to uh, lead us through some of the praises, prayers, and perplexities of the early Psalms. The sub-theme that I've chosen is a heart ablaze for God. You're probably already warm enough this morning. But in these early Psalms, we find a cultivation of devotion. The book of Psalms, after all, is God's inspired songbook. It's God's inspired prayer book for us, and it teaches us basically three things. First of all, it teaches us who God is. Running through the Psalms is a clearer picture for us of who our God is. And we need a clearer view of God. Usually when our worship of God is what it should be, when it's high, when it's exalted, then our worries, our concerns seem very manageable. But when we lose sight of God, when we forget who he is, then our worries, our perplexities mount up and they sometimes overwhelm us. Not only does the Psalms teach us who God is, it teaches us how God has communicated with us. He's communicated in nature. He's communicated through his word. He's communicated through circumstances. And we also learn how we may communicate with him. The Psalms guide us back to God. The Psalms guide us how to pray, how to praise, how to deal with the perplexities of life. There's a ring of reality that runs through the Psalms. Look at this quote from K. Harmon. The Psalms are, or as a collection, reveal the faith journey of God's people as they came by fits and starts to discover the nature of the one true God and this God's love for them and desire to lead them to fullness of life. Isn't that our life story as well? Our journey with God, and every one of us here today is on a journey with God, we have come by fits and starts. Some days, some weeks, some months, we make great progress. Other times we seem to be standing still. But God desires that we know the nature of who he is and his love for us and his great desire to lead us to fullness of life. Jesus himself said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Have we reached that? Have we received that from Christ? It's available to us, and we're invited to ask. Lawrence Richards writes, in every experience of our own, no matter how deep the pain, or how great the frustration, or how exhilarating the joy, we can find psalms which echo our inmost being, psalms which God uses to bring comfort or to confirm release. It's a powerful book. There's a lot of emotion running through these 150 psalms. It's not uncommon for the Jewish people to have all 150 memorized. I'm not sure where you're at in that list. We probably have Psalm 23 down cold once or twice, but there are some other psalms that need to fill out our prayer and praise and help us as we grapple with the perplexities that God permits in our life. This morning, I want to lead you through a study of Psalm 2. Would you turn there, please, in your Bibles? A coronation psalm, a psalm celebrating 
the coronation of God's king. This psalm was often echoed on further coronation ceremonies because as the king took the throne, as the new king was installed in Jerusalem, he committed himself to God and to his word. In fact, he was responsible, the law tells us, for personally copying out the law of God. It was his reference guide. It was his statue of guidance. It were the principles by which he was to reign. And by hand, he was to make his own copy. And here in Psalm 2, let's take a look at this tremendous engagement as the psalmist, David, according to the New Testament, engages and wrestles with a question. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This coronation psalm, this installation of God's king, is a formal ceremony. What's perhaps the most formal ceremony you've ever attended? I doubt if any of you attended the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. Perhaps some of you had televisions in 1953. Can I see some hands? Two or three, maybe more. <laughs> Watch this historic event as part of a worldwide audience. Take a look at how the reporters of the day describe this event. The coronation of Queen Elizabeth II was a day of stunning pageantry and ritual that was celebrated around the world and marked the beginning of a long and historic reign. We're celebrating 60 years this year of her being on the throne uh, as Queen of uh, England and, of course, our own Queen of this nation. The coronation, of course, caught the, the, uh, the media's attention because it was Britain's first mass television event watched by more than 20 million people. Now, that statistic is from Britain. Worldwide, 225 million compared with 750 million who watched Charles and Diana's wedding. Anybody remember that? or two billion people who watched Prince William and Kate Middleton. The numbers have climbed as media has had a greater influence on our lives and around the world. Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is a four-act play. It's a four-stanza psalm that portrays for us and, and calls us to a new understanding of who God is, that he is king, and that Jesus Christ is his anointed, that he, that is Christ, is the King of kings and Lord of lords. I want us to look this morning at these four acts. 
the first act is caught up and focuses, takes, takes place in the palaces of the world. Act one, in the palaces of the world, portrays the rage that is going on there. Rage in the palaces. Without any introduction, without any formality, the psalmist plunges straight into this theme. The nations of the world, their warriors, their leaders, their peoples, have gathered together in a major act of defiance against God. Individually and collectively, they are shaking their fists at God. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's break their chains and throw off their shackles. Why? Why do nations do this? Why do leaders take on God? There's there's no answer given, is there? There's no answer in the text. It's simply an observation that the psalmist makes. It's, as it were, the WikiLeaks of his day. He hears the leaders plotting. He hears them murmuring. In fact, the word for plotting there in verse 1 is the same word that's translated back in verse 2 of chapter 1 as meditating. They are muttering, as it were. They are repeating over and over. They're muttering to themselves their defiance against God. They're in commotion. Long before we knew of the Arab Spring turmoil, long before we had CNN coverage of every tiny event in the world, and sometimes over-coverage, the nations of the world were plotting together, were gathering together in turmoil. We see it on our television news. The psalmist could see it in the conduct of these world leaders. And probably a thousand years before Christ, he is grappling with this situation. Why are they doing this? Why have they decided to take on God? They're they're doing it without any purpose. The, The nations are raging. The peoples are plotting in vain. Turn with me for a moment to Luke chapter 23. Here's an example, New Testament example of the same principle. You'll recall this verse is written on Good Friday. On Good Friday, two political leaders who had been enemies became friends. Luke 23, verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, King Herod, He was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. What kind of a curiosity is that? He he plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. Notice these words, verse 12 of Luke 23. That day, that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Back to Psalm, Psalm 2. The nations, the leaders of the nations are taking on God. They want to throw off the yoke, as it were, that God has imposed over their necks. 
they are king and they don't want to have a king. This psalm really helps us to gain a theological perspective for interpreting world events. I don't interpret world events in light of the local newspaper. I interpret it in the light of Scripture. And Psalm 2 engages us with this theological perspective. The psalmist says to us, look around, you'll see turmoil. Look up, you'll see truth. Look around, you'll see the nations in turmoil, the nations plotting and scheming and strategizing ways to to eliminate God from their culture, eliminate God from ruling over them. Look up, you'll see a ruling Lord. They do rage, they rage against God, and the issue is their absolute declared rebellion, their defiance. We will not have this king over us. Now, I would doubt that there are any world leaders here this morning. If you're here, welcome. But individually, we experience the same things, don't we? Individually and as families, we take on God. We want to plot our own destiny. We want to set our own course. It wasn't just the famous, I did it my way, that that echoes through human history. Insisting that we can plot our own lives, we can set our own course. No one tells us what to do, especially in Canada where we have rights and freedoms. Perhaps no one else knows, but we're really rebels at heart. We don't want God to tell us how to live. We don't want anyone to correct us. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah wrote. Who can know it? Act 1, rebellion, rage, defiance of God. Act 2, rebuke. Act 2 in verses 4 through 6 takes us into the scene of heaven. It takes us to heaven where the one, verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven namely God, engages with these rebels, looks at these puny little world powers, and how does he respond? Does it catch them off guard? Does he wring his hands in turmoil and and perplexity, say, now what am I going to do? The world's out of control. Not at all. Not at all. Verses 4 through 6, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. God the Father's response to the rage and rebellion of the nations is simply disregard. Notice the verbs again. He laughs at them. He scoffs at them. Who do you think you are to take on God? Oh, but who are we? How does God respond to our rebellion? Isn't it amazing, and we'll consider that more tonight, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in rebellion, while we were defying God's laws, while we were going our own way, wandering off like sheep, Isaiah 53, 
The Lord laid on him, the Lord laid on Christ, the sin of us all. Oh, the mercy of God. But these leaders have not and are not experiencing God's mercy. God's laughter is an expression of his ridicule. He knows their end. He knows what will become of these quote-unquote world powers. After all today, where is Alexander the Great? Where are the emperors who declared themselves Lord and God? We've seen in our own era the dismantling of a nation that embedded in its structure atheism. Remarkable, isn't it? I ask you this morning, do you know God? Has God rebuked you? Has he spoken truth into your heart and called you on your rebellion? Challenged you to surrender? Given you an opportunity to yield your life to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords? Isn't it remarkable how we each think that our era is the worst? Erasmus wrote, the 16th century is the most turbulent century. Luther said, we can get our focus on God, and he sat down and wrote, a mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe, even the enemy of our soul, Satan, doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth and not as equal. Here we are, 21st century. Who is king of your life? Notice how God responds. He rebukes these nations. He terrifies them in his wrath. And he says, verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion my holy hill. He's installed. Now listen, this is a thousand years before Jesus ever came to earth. And already, even through these foreshadowing monarchs, through David and through his descendants, as they are anointed, as they experience coronation, he is looking ahead to the, fact, to the time when Christ will be established. When Christ will be installed, it's as good as done. God says to all these kings, there are hundreds of them. How many nations of the world are there? 200 and some? How many were there in David's day? God says to them, I have my rightful ruler. He is installed. He is on the throne. Are you prepared to meet him? Are you honoring him? Have you kissed the son? We'll get to that at the end of the psalm. He is set in place. In 2013, we've been celebrating the 60th anniversary of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. She was, she was set in place. There was a big celebration. L listen, the king that we've been singing about, the king we're concerned about today is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And he is set in place. The I here is emphatic. 
God himself has made this appointment. You see, the kings in David's day, many of them were self-appointed. They were self-appointed with military rule. Whoever had the strongest military power, whoever had the strongest military strength, conquered, developed leadership among their peers, rose up in power, and declared themselves to be king. Even King Herod did that. He was appointed king. You'll recall when the wise men, do you remember that story? It was Christmas. Doesn't it feel good to think about Christmas on a hot day? Wasn't that far back when we thought about that occasion when these wise men, these foreign kings, showed up at the capital city and said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. That did not make Herod's day, to say the least. Born king? I'm the king. Where is this young upstart? Where is this prince who's been born? The anointed king rules by God's appointment. This is no self-appointed political tyrant. The Lord God of heaven and earth has installed his king on Zion, his holy hill. His king is his anointed. His king is the Christ. His king is the Messiah. And we must all stand before him someday. What has God done to rebuke your rebellion? Who has he sent into your life to correct your misperception about yourself and him? What opportunities has he given you to look into his word and to see who he is and to see who you are as you stand before him? Are you in touch with the king? Do you know the king? God corrects those he loves, doesn't he? God punishes every son that he receives. He disciplines us. Scripture says, and if we're not disciplined by God, we are not part of his family. Well, in verses 7 through 9, we move into this third act. We've been overhearing the rage and turmoil of the palace. We've heard the rebuke that, that has come down from heaven, and now it's coronation day. Now the king, now the one who's to be installed, who is to have that crown that surpasses all other crowns placed on his head, speaks up. Verse 7. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. This divinely appointed king speaks about what he knows. He has his own relationship with God. God, the Lord God, the covenant-keeping God, is the father of the king. There is this announcement. How many announcements are made in coronation days? It's an unbelievably formal ceremony. 
the citation of Queen Elizabeth's coronation, 11 hours of live coverage. All kinds of details, all kinds of announcements anticipating the event. The psalmist picks up on this one announcement, the most important announcement that needs to be made on coronation day. Did any of you hear about a birth of some prince in London, England? Any of you have any, was there any anticipation of that? Was there any media gathered outside that hospital? That poor gal couldn't go into any contractions without it being broadcast all over the world. There we were, wanting to know when the Duchess of Cambridge was about to give birth. Everyone was waiting. Everyone was watching. Would it come out on Twitter? Facebook? Who, where was the announcement going to be made? Who'd get the news first? Who'd get the first picture? Who'd break the story? I ask you again this morning, do you recall Christmas? Where was Jesus born? Where was the king of kings born? In a palace? In some well-equipped hospital in the little town of Bethlehem? No, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, was born in a manger. A cattle-feeding trough And the only guests who showed up late that night were some shepherds, probably still smelling like the barn after they'd been looking after their flocks by night. That's the welcome he got. Doesn't that show our priority as a people? Doesn't that show what has gripped us? In these verses, this installed king speaks the one who's been installed by the Lord God, opens the scroll on coronation day and reads a statement that everyone must hear, that everyone needs to know. He said to me, you're my son. Listen, you can't get any closer than that. In John chapter 5, there's a remarkable passage, and we'll develop that further tonight in the communion service, where... Jesus himself indicates and and reminds us that all judgment has been entrusted to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This king, installed on Zion, this holy hill, is the Son of God. He has the legal right to be on the throne. The the king on the throne is God. We must worship him. We must respond to him. We cannot ignore this king of kings and lord of lords and simply shrug our shoulders and go on our way. You see, his reward taught to us in these verses, his reward is tied into a relationship, isn't it? The Father, God the Father, gives the Son, as it were, a blank check and says to him, fill it in. Anybody had that privilege? Your dad ever given you a checkbook and say, just, just fill it out any way you like? 
Speak to me after. I'll use you as the next illustration. Next time I preach on Psalm 2, it's unusual, isn't it? But here the Lord God of heaven and earth says to his son, says to this king, ask of me, and I will take these nations, I will take these rebellious leaders, I will take all these peoples and give them to you. You can have a whole group of rebels. You can conquer them. Wow. There's a, there's a truth in this passage that teaches us that, that the reward given to the son is tied into a relationship. He's invited. Jesus is invited. The anointed one, the Messiah, called, spoken of as the anointed one back in verse 2, is invited to extend his rule. Just ask. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. You can have it all. The ends of the earth, your possession. Now, without anticipating everything from tonight's study so you don't come back, in the gospel, the devil used this truth. Do you recall as Jesus was tempted by the devil, the devil took him up into a high mountain. What did he show him? All the nations of the world. And he said to them, said to Jesus, all this I will give you if you'll just bow down and worship me. That was not God's plan. You fast track from Matthew 4 to 28. Come tonight, we'll fill in the details. And what do you have Jesus saying? After his death, after his suffering, after going to the cross for rebels, Jesus, victorious on the Mount of Olives, stands and says, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. All nations. The nations that are rebelling, the nations that are raging will be made the possession of the one they are rebelling against. Derek Kidner, author of a commentary on the Psalms, writes, this text has launched many missionary ventures whenever its force has come home to the church. This text, ask. Calvary Baptist Church partners with men and women around the world who've taken this text seriously who go in the name of Christ, who believe that disciple-making is the mandate of the church. It's not optional. It's the command, his last command, our first concern. I trust that's true. And that as we go into all the nations, as God takes us into all the countries of the world, or in his marvelous plan brings the countries of the world to Oshawa, we go in his name, we go under his authority with the gospel, and we have his authority to make all people, disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations in fulfillment of this incredible promise made by the Father to the Son. Ask. Ask. And I will make the nations your inheritance. How remarkable. What a plan. And we can have a part in it. We get to forward God's plan. We get to partner with the greatest plan. Listen, you may have no authority from any monarch on this earth, but you have the authority of the King of Kings. 
and Lord of Lords if Jesus Christ is indeed your Lord. Well, in the final act, the psalmist has heard this rage. He's seen the rebuke that has come down from heaven. He's engaged and heard the announcement, which includes the reward of the Son. Now he has a message to get back to the palace. The sooner the better. While these rebels are still engaged, while they are still shaking their fist at God, the psalmist, as it were, with a, with a, as an urgent messenger, runs back to the palaces of the world, tracks back with these leaders who have been defying God and says to them, pleads with them as we do when we preach and teach and evangelize and share the gospel passionately with those we're concerned about. What does he say? Verse, nine, verse 10, Therefore, you kings... Be wise. The, the, the issue is, will there be any repentance in the palaces? Here's your chance. Here's your opportunity. Some of you here today, God has brought you here to give you an opportunity to repent and turn to him. To run up the white flag and say all to Jesus, I surrender all to him I freely give. I'm done with rebelling. I'm done with defying God. I want to go God's way, and I'm going to declare it publicly before family and friends in this church family. What's the message? What's the urgent? How would you go back to monarchs who have authority over you? You're just a messenger, but he, in the name of the Lord God, in the name of the one enthroned in heaven, he pleads with these kings. Notice the urgency, verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise. You see, he's heard their rebellion. And now he says to them, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The wisest response, the only response, the proper response to the King of Kings is a response of repentance. If you're wise, not intelligent, you see, intelligent people can write unwise books like the God Delusion. To be a fool who says there is no God, Psalm 14, 1, does not mean you lack intelligence. That's a whole other discussion. We'll save that for some of the other weeks. But you kings, if you're wise, this is what you, you will do. But this isn't just for kings. This isn't just for rulers. It's for us. Here's the warning. It is foolish, it is futile to rebel against the king of all the earth. Yet we continue, don't we? It's foolish. It is hopeless. It is empty to defy God and think you're going to win. Take on God and see who wins. Yet we do, don't we? We persist in our rebellion. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know them? 
Pay attention. Let yourself be corrected, he is saying to them. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve. Submit. The issue here is one of submission. Submission is always, not sometimes, it is always expressed by service. You show me an individual, you show me a family who is submitted to Christ, and I'll show you a family who's serving Christ. You can't be submitted and refuse to serve. They, they just don't go together. Serve the Lord. How do you serve him? With fear. N not emotional instability, but with reverence. The issue is, how may I show reverence to Christ? How in my conduct from day to day and week to week and month to month and year to year May I demonstrate that I'm following Christ. I'm a Christ follower. Serve him with fear. Celebrate, or some translations say rejoice, the NIV says here, with trembling. A number of years ago, I was visiting in a senior's home in northern Ontario, and there was a man in there who was a World War II vet. He had been part of the invasion of Europe, he'd been awarded Medal for Bravery, and he told me a remarkable story of one afternoon when he was based just outside of London, and he was on leave. Basically, he had the afternoon off. As he's leaving, he's out of uniform, he's walking away from the base, and his commanding officer st stops him and said, it's great that I found you, I have a different plan for you. And he says, but sir, I'm on leave. No, he said, you may be on leave, but the palace is called. And apparently, he'd been summoned to Buckingham Palace. And when you're summoned to Buckingham Palace, it's not wise to say no. And so reluctantly, he made his way back to the barracks, got in his uniform, because those in the palace, whom you might know if you know history at all, wanted to express appreciation to the Canadians for their support in the war effort. So he mustered up his uniform, dusted it all off, shined his shoes, got everything ready, was brought by a palace limo to Buckingham Palace. And in the middle of the afternoon, while his buddies were out either training or out at the front, there he was at the palace enjoying high tea and crumpets or whatever they had. And he said to me, Pastor Keith, to think I would have missed it. So insistent, so determined to have time off that I missed an audience with the king. I thought of that illustration a hundred times. That I'm so busy, I'm too busy to have an audience with the king? Really? Too busy not to pray. Serve him with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Listen, there has to be a mixture of emotions that you experience in the face of coming into the presence of the king. Joy. Trembling. Ecstatic joy. You have access to the King of Kings, yet fear because you're in the presence of a holy God. That's the reality of the Christian life. That's what it means to come into his presence. His plea to them as we close, kiss the Son. Show your honor. Remember, in this culture, in which David is writing, it is a symbol of affection. It is a symbol of homage. 
It is a symbol of subjection. Run to the sun. Embrace the sun. The, the wise men got it right, didn't they? We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. Love Jesus. What's the plea? What's the point? What's the take home for us on this summer Sunday morning? Love Jesus. Worship Jesus. Submit to Jesus. He is Lord. Can you say with me this morning, Jesus Christ is Lord? He, he is Lord. He is my Lord. Jesus Christ is my Lord. Blessings come from taking refuge in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to engage with your word and to consider where we stand with you. We worship you, Lord God, and thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You have come to us in our rebellion and you've brought to us salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that today every single one of us would look into our own hearts, that we would allow the Holy Spirit of God to probe into the very innermost parts of our lives and determine whether or not that we are submitted, totally yielded to Jesus Christ. We pray that you would work your goodwill in all of our lives. And as we sing in response, Father, we pray that we would be guided into a fresh surrender to Jesus who is called the Christ, the King of all kings, and the Lord of all lords. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we close of the song that we introduced to you earlier that celebrates our risen king. A powerful testimony of who Jesus Christ is. Another familiar song we sometimes sing has these words, I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Dr. Samuel Zwemer, who's considered an apostle to Islam, a man who was greatly burdened with the need of the Islamic world many years ago, in addressing a group of believers at a convention called to challenge them to surrender to Christ, said these words, unless Jesus Christ is Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the promise in your word. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We hear the words of Jesus to his early followers. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Speak into our hearts, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. May you find us collectively and individually today, O oh Lord, in a posture of repentance at the foot of the cross where Christ loved us and died for us. Now we pray that the grace of our God, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would rest upon us until we meet again. Amen.